All right, we'll get started. Uh, today, this is Callie Thompson. I am a uh, burn and trauma surgeon at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and today's career cast is going to be a conversation with Dr. Amalia Cochran. Dr. Cochran is a professor and vice chair of education at The Ohio State University. Uh, she is a burn surgeon and a master educator. So uh, we'll get started. Dr. Cochran, thank you for joining us today. Callie, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, this, the goal for this podcast is uh, we're doing this in conjunction with the Ad Hoc uh, East Burns Task Force, and, and our goal is to shed some light on burn surgery as a career and give some guidance to young surgeons who may be interested in burn surgery or not even um, kind of be thinking about it, but, but give some food for thought for them. So uh, first to start, Dr. Cochran, tell us your story. How did you become a burn surgeon? Um. <laughs> I think the easiest thing for me to say, and a name a few people may still remember, is this is all Dr. Jeff Saffel's fault. Um, and while that's not entirely true, he definitely played a really big role in me uh, becoming a burn surgeon. Uh, I was a general surgery resident, and when I did my rotation as a third-year uh, resident at the University of Utah, I realized that I had found my home during my three months that I was in the burn unit. I loved the work that we were getting to do. I loved the spectrum of patients that we had during that particular time. I think my youngest patient was nine months old and my oldest patient was 87 years old. Um, and I loved the fact that I could go from doing a big, messy excision on a huge burn to being the ICU doctor to doing some nice, elegant, little reconstructive-type case. And so the the variety of the patient base and the variety of what we get to do, coupled with the fact that we get to know kind of the rest of the story for our patients, since we do tend to be engaged with them longer term, were all things that really appealed to me. And so um, that, was, uh, that was how this all happened. <laughs> All right, and what, you know, there's a lot of different paths to become a burn surgeon. Um, tell us about the, the path that you took and then maybe some other paths because there's some general surgeons who are doing burn surgery. There's plastic surgeons who are doing burn surgery. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, you know, the plastic surgery pathway is still used some in the United States, and there are some burn centers that uh, are staffed primarily with plastic surgeons. I would say that in general, I find that that model is more prevalent in Canada than it is in the U.S. Uh, when I think about our burn surgery colleagues in Canada, um, I can't think of any of them who are not plastic surgeons rather than having trained through general surgery. Uh, here in the States, for the plastic surgery pathway, um, you know, historically, if people did general surgery followed by a plastics fellowship, they were still eligible also to go get a certificate of added qualifications in critical care if they wanted it, although, you know, maybe at most a handful of, of folks did over the years. Um, the advantage that I see to training as a plastic surgeon going into burns is that um, when we do hit on those super complicated wounds that we have every once in a while or when we have really terrible hands uh, or when there's a complex reconstruction that needs to be done. For example, I never learned how to do tissue expanders or free flaps, and I'm very much okay that I don't have those skill sets. Um, someone who's trained in plastics would have those skill sets. So if you are someone that tends maybe a little more to the reconstructive side and interest in burns, that may be a better pathway 
the disadvantage I see to training in um, plastics to go into Burns is that looking at the curriculum for most plastics fellowships and plastics residencies these days, they really do not do a lot of time in Burns. So a fellowship would in, specifically dedicated to Burn would still really be, uh, if not absolutely necessary, it would certainly be very beneficial. Um, they just don't spend that much time training in Burns specifically. Um, the pathway I came through is general surgery. Uh, one of the sort of plot twists for me is I'm actually the very first person that did one of the one-year integrated fellowships. Um, <laughs> they became available in 2004, uh, was the first year that David Herndon was filling his at UTMB, and I took advantage of that. Prior to that, it had been two years where you would go and do a year of burn, and you could certainly stop at that point. But for me, I thought it was really important to have a certificate of added qualifications in critical care, and I wanted to be able to sit for that exam. And so it was necessary for me to go ahead and um, uh, do a year where I could also get the critical care credit. So 2004 was the first year that that model was available as an integrated one-year model, um, and I took advantage of that, and I'm still glad that I did. That has become a more common model, although both the two-year Burns Plus critical care uh, versus a one-year integrated model, both of those do exist out there still. Awesome. And uh, what advice do you, would you give to young surgeons who are considering a career in burn surgery? Ah, we've got the best job on earth. That's the advice I would give. <laughs> um, I mean, there are days that it's a hard job, and I think that that's, you know, that's a reality check for any of us that um, take care of very complicated patients um, who have life-threatening illnesses and injuries. Um, but on balance, we get to do really amazing things. Um, we get to take care of really amazing people. And I think, to me, the best part of it is that we get to do it as part of a team. And so, you know, learning to function at a very high level as a team member uh, is a super important skill if you want to excel as a burn surgeon and if this is the direction that you're looking. Um, I almost feel like we are more team dependent in terms of interdisciplinary team than any surgical specialty that I can really think of. Oh, I would agree with that too. Maybe I'm biased as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, it also makes our job a lot more fun and a lot more interesting because I learn mm -hmm. so much from the other disciplines who are on the team with us and have over a lot of years. And so, um, you know, I think if you're someone who's curious and, and you're someone who really likes functioning in an environment where, yes, you know, I'm ultimately held accountable as a team leader, uh, but, gosh, I've got a great group of backup dancers here. <laughs> yeah. So one of the big worries that I have, and you already touched on this a little bit, is how um, how much burn training has been removed from the surgical residency curriculum. And there's, you know, many surgical res residents are now going through their programs and never getting any experience in burn. Um, what should they be, what if they're interested in burn? How are they going to get some experience? Or what would you recommend to them to I kind of get their, their feet off the ground? Yeah, I think that's a really, um, that is a very complex problem. Um, 
I mean, I'll be completely honest. If I hadn't trained somewhere where we had a burn rotation and a lot of a burn rotation, I'm not sure that I would have landed in this spot um, because it's really hard to see what it is and, and understand what it is unless you're somewhere that burns is even an option. And so I think certainly for medical students when they're looking at residency, if they think they might have an interest in burn, um, they've it's high priority to look at, you know, going to a program where you'll be able to get some burn experience, where they've got a burn center and where you can be part of that. Um, because I even know of programs where they have a burn center, but where you don't get a burn experience as part of your training since it's not um, mandated by the RRC. Uh, but making sure, you know, if you're someone that's potentially looking this direction very early on, that you are somewhere that you can find a way to do burn time. Um, the the real challenge is, of course, if you're in a residency somewhere where you don't even have access to a burn center, it's really hard to figure out how to make it happen so you can get that clinical exposure to confirm or deny your uh, your inclination around burns. Um, you know, certainly it would be possible to say, well, I'll go ahead and I'll do like a trauma acute care, critical care year somewhere that has burns and I can explore it more then. And that's probably the best option for somebody that ends up in that position. Um, you know, I I have a one of my former medical students who I still mentor did his residency somewhere where they had pretty limited burn exposure, but he had done burn with us when he was a medical student, and he's doing his trauma acute care fellowship right now, and it's a place that they do have a lot of burn exposure, and so he's really hoping to make that part of uh, what he does going forward. Um, but again, he had the advantage of having the exposure as a med student. So I, at the end of the day, I think it's all about being able to get in the environment and learn about the work. Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on that. I don't think I would be a burn surgeon either if I hadn't trained in a place where we got a lot of experience as a resident. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's crazy what that does for you. <laughs> yep. Um, so in the, switching gears a little bit, in the East, you know, burn task force, we've been talking a lot about workforce and workforce shortages, particularly with burn surgeons and how that kind of plays into some of the mass casualty stuff and the fact that there's a lot of trauma centers that may not have a burn center. So the first-line treatment um, for burn patients is trauma surgeons. How do you think trauma surgeons and burn surgeons can best collaborate? I think there are a few ways that can happen. I mean, there are obviously the places where um, people wear sort of multiple identity hats, if that makes sense, that they do trauma and burn and ACS and sort of all of the things that fall into the bucket where we tend to live in burns. Um, and I think that that certainly, by definition, lends itself to some collaboration. Um, you know, having been at Utah for the number of years that I was and, and how insanely busy the burn program there was, we, quote, unquote, only did burns, because anyone who does burns knows what I'm saying when I tell you only did burns. Um, but it was just we simply didn't have the clinical bandwidth and the hours in the day and the personal fortitude to do anything else because of how busy the burn program was, uh, clinically speaking. Uh, you know, occasionally uh, we would call on our 
critical care colleagues for help with really strange problems since we all had CAQs in critical care. Um, you know, I'm now at an institution where I think that it would be a little bit easier to support someone who had interests in doing all of the above. Um, I personally have pigeon, pigeonholed myself and say I only do burns because I have not operated in the belly in more than probably eight years, and I don't really want to go back to it. Um, but I think that finding ways that we can support each other, I think that for the burn surgeons, making sure that we've got really good um, disaster resources and basic education resources that are readily available for our trauma colleagues to to access even if technology goes down, um, that, you know, we have a responsibility to educate and support our colleagues that maybe don't do this as their full-time gig. Um, and then I honestly, I'm a really big advocate for regionalization of burn care. There does not need to be a burn center on every single corner. Um, and I think those of us that work in burns have a reasonable understanding of that because we recognize that there's the resource of having the burn surgeons to run the programs, of course, but when you look at, again, that whole team that we have to assemble and people who are not MDs that still have a lot of burn expertise, you're looking at just a, a huge economic uh, investment to build a really um, credible burn center that can deliver very high-quality care. And so I think you know, there's a responsibility to, on all of us and on the healthcare system to recognize that we maybe don't need, um, you know, burn centers scattered everywhere, but really trying to regionalize care and provide high quality care at centers that have a little bit more volume um, so that the patients can have best outcomes over time, you know, recognizing that's often done with some inconvenience to patients and families because of travel. Excellent. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that you that your clinical job, but I also mentioned that you are the vice chair of education at Ohio <laughs> State, and I know that okay, education is a big passion of yours. Um, tell us about that. Tell us kind of how you married the two, being this master educator educator who's been nationally recognized for your um, teaching and mentorship and sponsorship, and um, how how you're doing both. Um. I, to me, there is a very natural fit between doing burns and being an educator. All of the really spectacular burn surgeons who I know, uh, even if they don't identify as teachers and educators, often are very good teachers and educators because if you think about, again, how much time we spend interacting with our interdisciplinary team and learning from one another, if you think about how much time we spend teaching our patients and families because we do a lot of teaching of our patients and families because they are having a completely new to them experience. Um, and uh, we are the only ones that have had any sort of exposure to it often previously. And so, you know, in my, my mind, there's sort of a natural fluidity between being a, um, a burn surgeon and being at a minimum a master teacher because of the nature of the work that we do. And so that piece was just always a logical fit for me. And then, quite honestly, when I started out in my career in academic surgery, I was very adamant that my commitment for my scholarly side of my existence 
was going to be to develop my career as, a, as an educator. And um, I will be completely transparent and say that at the time that I was doing this, 2005-ish, uh, there was a whole lot of skepticism around that concept because, if, uh, you know, for people that have been around for any length of time, like being a surgical educator and being promoted academically as a surgical educator was not an actual thing 15 years ago. <laughs> um, and so while there was a lot of skepticism and uh a whole lot of choose-your-own-adventure that I had to figure out for myself. Um, what I also uh, realized is that um, this was doable and it was important work and I was really passionate about doing it. And, again, I'm going to bring up Dr. Saffel here. He um, was a huge fan and a huge supporter and believed in this crazy idea that I had that we could have surgical educators. And so he, at, you know, he used a lot of his political and social capital to support me in doing this. Um, and I think that's an important lesson for, for young surgeons is uh, while he was not my only supporter and advocate, certainly Lee Neumeyer gets to wear that hat as well. When you are coming out of your training and starting in your first faculty job, having those people who are going um, to haul you in their office and give you a talking to when you deserve it, uh, but more importantly, who are going to be your big fans and your huge supporters and will move heaven and earth to help you get where you want to go as long as you're willing to do the work. That's just mission critical. And you, you've now mentioned two people, Dr. Saffel and Dr. Neumeyer, who are both, you know, early in your career mentors and sponsors for you. What advice would you give? I know we talk a lot to medical students and residents about mentorship and finding their mentors. What about those early career surgeons who are going to maybe an institution where they've never been before? They don't know very many people. What advice would you have for them for finding those mentors and sponsors? Um, be on the lookout even when you're starting to interview somewhere. You know, kind of know the landscape and know who's there. And then when you get there, meet a lot of people. And don't just meet people in your department. Meet people outside of your department. Try and find people who may have shared interests but who are in a different specialty. Um, you know, it is it is totally okay to have mentors and sponsors who do things that are a little different than what you do. You know, one of my very good professional friends who um, – she and Dr. Neumeyer and I joke all the time that we have our girl gang where we nominate and support and sponsor each other for a lot of things as an anesthesiologist. Um, and, you know, when she first came to Utah from UCSF, Lee and I immediately recognized that uh, that Harriet Hope would be a great addition to our um, our cabal, as it were. <laughs> so we reached out to Harriet and we were like, hey, we, we think we should all spend some time together and we should, you know, sort of – co-enable one another, and that's ended up just being a fabulous um, partnership and team uh, over many years. And even though we're all three geographically dispersed to the winds now, um, you know, I think really just keeping an eye out and listening and, again, being very open to people who are not your obvious suspects for mentors. Great. And um, just kind of wrapping up, where, you know, you are a leader in burn surgery. Where do you hope to see the future of burn surgery heading? Um, I want to see us continuing to convince people that we have the greatest job on earth because I I, I really do believe that. 
I don't just say that as a marketing ploy. I really think I have the best job on the planet. Uh, you can't tell me that fixing redo, redo, redo hiatal hernias could possibly be any more fun and interesting than what I get to do all the time. Um, I'm excited about our future from a science standpoint because I think we're really starting to see uh, persistent progress in terms of you know, how we're able to manage wounds, how we're able to get people to heal. Um, you know, I keep thinking that maybe right around when I retire in another 12 or 13 years that we'll be at a point where um, we're not having to take huge donor sites off of people all the time to get their, their wounds healed. We'll have some other way to manage that process that will either be lesser or not at all. Um, I think we're getting a lot. The, you know, the biggest direction that I really see burn care going and that I'm, I'm so delighted to see the focus is on the patients and their families and being much more patient-centered and looking at our outcomes. Um, because at the end of the day, we can do a whole lot of things and we can think that the things that we're doing are really great, but what matters is what our patients uh, are able to go do and what we're able to help their new normal look like. And so if we are able to help get them back out there doing the things that they love and that they're passionate about, that's really how we do our biggest service. Yeah, I, that's, I love that about um, the just the transitions that I've seen in, in burn care to this patient-centered, patient-reported outcome, mm -hmm. um, you know, all the burn model system stuff. I think it just is so great to see um, that kind of patient-centered care that's maybe been more present in other areas of medicine, extent of burn care, where we've maybe been a little bit paternalistic in the past. I think we've been a little bit paternalistic, and I think some of it was that it took us a few years, to, you know, once we realized that we were having a lot of survivors of, of injuries that wouldn't have previously been survivable, we had to figure out, okay, so if we're not going to talk about survival all the time, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it took us a while to really engage around that idea of, oh, maybe we should be talking about meaningful survival. <laughs> Um, and making that sort of cognitive transition to, um, you know, it's not just about getting them out the door of the hospital, but it's about getting them out the door of the hospital to do do things in the world that matter to the patients. Yeah. All right. Well, as I wrap up, are there any last thoughts you want to share with the East CareerCast audience? Anything that I forgot to ask you that maybe I should have? Boy, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Um, I mean, Burn, you know, Burns is a great job, and I think that I can't emphasize that enough for people because, you know, unfortunately, even the residents that get to rotate with us, a lot of times they drop in and they're there for maybe a month or two, and they don't always see the long-term stories. They don't see the survivors that are going out and not just surviving but thriving. Um, and, you know, you and I have been in the game long enough that we know that that's real. Mm -hmm. and um, helping them find ways to learn and see that, be that volunteering at burn camps or inviting them to survivor events if they have any sort of an interest, I think could also be another really interesting way to foster um, interest in our profession that I think chose many of us rather than us having chosen it. 